Hey there, it's episode number 14 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Veen. This week on the show is Rachel Elan Simpson. She's part of the design team for the Chrome browser at Google and has been working on features to help support the 1 billion new internet users coming online in emerging markets. We talk about what it takes to design for people who've never used a desktop computer and only know the online world through a phone connected to a 2G network. So let's get right to it. No, yeah, it was about 10 years ago. Uh, I worked for Google uh, in the Mountain View office in the oh, headquarters. Yeah. Uh, but I went all over the place. I went to um, offices. Uh, I think I went to one in Berlin, uh, if I yeah, can Yeah, there's remember. a small office there. It's actually really pretty. It's got a great location. It's yeah. right in uh, Mitte or something like that. Uh, I also, at the time, went to the Beijing office, but they don't have a Beijing office anymore. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I've, uh, I've never been to Beijing, and that is probably why. <laughs> right, yeah, they they closed that. I think it was after I had left Google, but it was um, it was huge. Really? Yeah, and they had a big user experience team, and so I spent a week with them and uh, cool. uh, had a really good time. Um, it was uh, it was a great group of people, very very talented. Um, so it's a shame that uh, they yeah, couldn't definitely. couldn't keep that working. So what brings you to Munich? You live there, yeah. I live, I live there, yes. Uh, I've been living here since about 2012 uh, when I came to work for uh, on a short-term contract for a design agency and just kind of ended up staying. Ah. Uh, so it's been, a, it's been a good adventure. I worked a lot as a freelancer and then uh, worked at Google as well. I hear that story from a bunch of, like, you know, I tend to hang out with a bunch of expats now. Uh, <laughs> I am one, and I, and I hear that all the time. Well, I came over for a little project and then pff, never left. yeah that seems to be how it happens yeah yeah i was in munich i think it was like 15 years ago now right around this time of year i remember that was christmas time because i went yeah and there was this oh now i can't remember what they called it but like a christmas market set up like right in the old part of town and there was all these stalls and they were selling mulled wine and it was it was just really really beautiful and and felt like i was had gone back like 300 years, you know. Yeah, that's totally how it is this time of year. You know, these the Christmas markets, and it's not just in the center, but that's, I think, one of the most beautiful ones because you have the old sort of... Uh, spire-covered uh, uh, city hall, but there's also a medieval one a few blocks from there, and uh, in our area, Heidhausen is sort of like the, I don't know, they call it the French Quarter of Munich. It's kind of this uh, older part with lots of original buildings, mm. uh, and they've got a really beautiful Christmas market there as well. It's just uh, really pretty. Yeah. A lot of like lights at night, little carousels, a lot of families. Uh, it's, it's really pretty. It's lovely. The Bavarians know how to do the holidays really well, I think. It's yes, <laughs> that's accurate, I would say. Um, I was, you know, I was thinking about that as I was sort of getting ready for us to record here. And that trip that I took to Munich was part of this, like, world tour with the Nielsen Norman group, Don Nielsen, Jacob, oh, cool. Jacob, uh, Jacob Nielsen, Don Norman, oh, Bruce Tognazzini, um, Brenda Laurel, <laughs> like all of these names. All the names. Uh, yeah, I, I was about to say from the past, but that's not true at all. They're all still very... Um, active. Uh, I guess you could say that about me. Yes, from the past as well. (laughs) But it was amazing to just be around this generation of people who had done so much fundamental work in like GUI design, like the real basics, you know, like documents and folders and right clicking and like... Mental models. Yeah, I know. Like the the (laughs) books that they had written, especially um, Don Mormon's Design of Everyday Things, Mm. was just so transformational in my career early on. Um, and Bruce Tugnazzi, Tog's work as well, I just thought, really helped me. I don't know, it was like learning grammar, 
you know, before you start really <laughs> writing essays. So we went uh, all over the place, Japan and Australia. Um, and for some reason, Munich, you know, um, they, they did a conference there. Yeah, it's there. interesting, actually. Yeah, it wasn't in Berlin or Hamburg, which seemed to be where, like, all the internet stuff is happening. I, I, for whatever reason, maybe they just wanted to go to Munich. I don't know. But it was... Yeah, it's possible. Well, I think they've got quite a lot of, um, or a few very large-scale conferences happening happening here once a year and they're they're fairly long-running ones as far as i understand hmm. um it's the I've, I've forgotten the name of the conference now the design something or other but it's uh, quite a large academic conference that happens about once a year and uh, a lot of big players from the big companies show up here and talk about design which yeah. is interesting uh is there a good sort of tech scene in munich uh, yeah, I think so. I think I think of it more as a design scene, personally. I think we, I mean, there's offices from Google here. I think we also have a Microsoft. I think there's a Facebook. So, you know, all all of the all of the big ones have big offices here. But um, I think it's also the reason I came, at least, was because a lot of the big design players are also represented here, and and probably because of the uh, history around industrial design, uh, which is what I studied originally. Um, so I think, uh, you know, you think of Frog and IDEO, they both have big offices here. Mm. Uh, a lot of the sort of large agencies like Sapient or uh, uh, Service Plan have offices here as well. Um, and then there's a huge number of smaller design agencies as, as well. Uh, so, yeah, it's a good place to work as a designer. I, the, free, the freelance uh, time I spent here uh, was really wonderful. I got to work with a lot of different companies and um uh, the way that my work was uh, integrated and respected and supported was uh, unique, I would say. So the work that you're doing now is really around, it, I seem to, well, I kind of want to characterize it as accessibility, mm -hmm. but, I, but I don't think that quite captures it, <laughs> right? Like you're doing a bunch of work on the Chrome browser to enable uh, adoption in emerging markets. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. And I like, I like thinking about it as accessibility. I kind of frame it as, uh, you know, we as the... Uh, I don't know if we want to say interaction design industry or we as the uh, design part of the trio, if you think of it. Um, we've done a lot of work to reframe our standards so that we can be uh, producing products that will support uh, different levels of accessibility. Mm -hmm. And that was, a, I, th I think, a significant change that we made a few years back, and, uh, and that's become sort of standard. Um, so the way that I think of it is, is that there's, you know, more than a billion people coming online on mobile for the first time ever uh, with no experience or background uh, using desktop computers. So they're, they're in many cases, missing mental models that we uh, take for granted. Um, and that can kind of create a, a poor foundation for our design for these users. Uh, so I think that we need to rethink and reframe the way that we design, uh, taking for granted that there are users who don't have those same mental models uh, that we would expect. Yeah, you know, that seems that there has been, certainly in the course of my career, the stigma around accessibility as additional work I have to do for people who are other, you know? Like, there's us, you know, all the, all the people in technology who have the, the big screens and the fast computers and the high bandwidth. And then, uh, yeah, and then we probably should think about other people too and do a bunch of work, which is really divisive. And I think the this idea of sort of taking accessibility apart and, and instead of uh, us and them making it this broad spectrum that we individually fall on different places on at different times in our lives and at different parts of our day, really, and yeah. think about it much more holistically is, I think, a lot more valuable way to think about it. So rather than like, boy, I guess we should really design for quote unquote India, you know, <laughs> you think, um, how can a design that I'm working on 
expand to encompass anybody at any time in any context. Mm -hmm. That seems to be a shift that has happened over the last number of years, but it's been slow. Well, and hopefully it's happening. Yes, for sure. And I I think of it very much as a spectrum. And I'm glad that you bring that up because I think of, um, you know, a user in uh, uh, Pune who has access to Wi-Fi, you know, uh, seven days out of 28 days. That's one way of thinking of it, right? And then are, are using uh, the 2G connection the rest of the time. That's right. like a pretty extreme case. Right. Um, but then you think of uh, me, you know, on a daily basis, dipping into the uh, S-Bahn here where my connectivity drops out, right? That's, you know, also a small percentage of the time that I rely on the, the 2G connection. Exactly. Um, and I think it's really important to characterize it that way because we think of it as emerging markets users. Um, but uh, that's maybe a cheap way to think of it. That's maybe not the right way to think of it. If you look at it, um, you know, there's a recently a study, it was recently a study from Ofcom, uh, it's called Smartphone by Default. Um, and they found that uh, 16% of users in the UK are primarily or only using smartphones. Um, and then I, I can reel off all the data, right? Uh, 20% of ho- households in the US are using only cell data. Uh, that's from the, uh, the US Census Bureau. And then uh, globally, mobile connections, uh, 60% of mobile connections are using uh, 2G. 2G. Uh, that, that's from the GSMA Mobile Economy Report. Yeah, so that's uh, that's a significant percentage of people in the world who uh, don't have the full desktop experience that we think of. I can't even, so I don't quite remember throughput for a 2G connection. It's like nothing, right? Uh, I, I wish I remembered exactly that stat, but I remember we, we had a fantastic talk. We had an internal conference. We were talking with different people who worked on different products across the company, thinking about users in emerging markets. Um, and there's a lot of really clever thinking going on about how we should restructure the way that we put data through. Um, and this is where I'm going to start revealing my lack of technical knowledge. But ultimately, if we, instead of trying to push through one big package of data, we start pushing through many smaller packages of data, uh, users are more likely to get that data in the end. So there's sort of an aspect of this that is, uh, that's relatively technical for designers, but if we start advocating uh, for these kinds of changes, uh, users are more likely to have a fluid experience of our UI in the end. So the, I just looked it up, by the way. The 2G GPRS <laughs> system has a, uh, in practice, 40 kilobits per second. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah, which is, is less than the 56K modem I had 20 years ago, right? So that's that's pretty more remarkable. And what was the statistic you said? The, the, the number of... The 2G? Yeah, the number of people that are using that. So it's 60% of mobile connections are on 2G. Worldwide, yeah. Worldwide. That's, so that's eye-opening, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's huge. And I, I think the other, the counterpoint to this, where I talk all about these, uh, you know, kind of negative statistics, which is to say that not everyone gets the great experience that we think of. Um, but I think that the flip side is, you know, huge, well, more than a billion people are coming online um, and having access to this kind of information now. And while we think of, uh, you know, the baseline experience being everything that we need to get something done. I think there's a lot of fantastic stories of people making use of mobile connections, making use of even even text phone, uh, text message-based services in ways that have transformative impacts on their lives. So let's just back up. Before we talk more about that in the emerging markets, this interesting that uh, statistic in the, the UK and US, you said between like 16 and 20% of households only have cellular uh, network connection, meaning yeah. there's probably no laptop. There's, uh, or if there is, it's not plugged into the internet. Or it's plugged into the smartphone internet. That's a significant population. Yeah, absolutely. 
That's one in five households. 20%, that's right. Yeah, that's, uh, that just seems remarkable to me that, um, again, my own bias, right, has been always mm-hmm. living in an urban environment. And, yeah, living um, in the Bay Area or New York, for example. Right, right. So the rural areas, much less served with the, the broadband, just much harder to connect uh, such disparate places, I guess. So yeah, I, I hadn't realized that. That's, that's also just uh, remarkable in how we think about people that, you know, we may see every day as part of this same uh, user base that has these really limited connections to the web. And I think it's, so that's from the U.S. Census Bureau, and I think it's really important to look at even sort of that very basic kind of data because uh, it's sort of the underpinning of our technological lives at this point, right? You think about uh, kids who go to school and their their teachers expect them to have access to email on their laptop at home. Um, or you look at, there's a great re- report or article, I've forgotten the source, I'll have to get it back to you, but uh, it was a study that was conducted in Detroit uh, about people who are looking for work uh, who don't have full access to the internet. So they would be forced to, you know, search for jobs using uh, the library computer, which would be limited to 30 minutes a day. Wow. Uh, so you think about, like, you know, all of those horrible forms you have to fill out uh, that are hard even to fill out on a desktop computer, and then imagine, you know, trying to, you know, spend 30 minutes doing that on the library internet and the rest of the day using your cell phone on 2G. Uh, it's a it's a pretty um, stark uh, picture. Yeah. Yeah, no, I take that for granted a lot where where there's multiple times a day where I'll, you know, because I think my primary net access comes via my phone now, right? Just because it's with me throughout the day and it's just multiple, multiple times. And there's so many times where I like run into something on my phone. I'm like, oh, all right, I'll finish that up when I get back to my laptop because this is, this site is a mess and there's no, you know, trying to like. You know, and you need your keyboard and you don't have access to the document because of the authentication situation or, you know, whatever it is. So if that sort of escape hatch is not available to me. And that's a whole different situation, isn't it? And it's really, really challenging because so many of the things that we that we do now have moved online. And I think that's great. I mean, it makes uh, a lot of things much more accessible, much faster and more efficient. But it means that we have to uh, take a, a serious look at, um, you know, internet access around our very various countries. I, I live in Germany, I'm from Canada, and, and I spend a lot of time in the U.S., uh, yeah, I think it's really interesting. Um, and now I'm diverging into territory that I haven't read about recently, but I, I remember reading something about uh, it was a Scandinavian country that included internet access as part of its constitution as a fundamental human right. Um, and I think that's something we need to think seriously about as we, uh, you know, start moving banking online. Um, Estonia, for example, uh, you can vote online. Um, and I think that's great, uh, but I think it's also uh, really important to recognize the disparity. I think we have, you know, some sense of that, at least in the uh, U.S., the notion of network neutrality, which I mm-hmm. think doesn't really get to the same degree <laughs> as that Scandinavian country you're talking about, where, the, where equal access as a fundamental right, not granting access. You know what I mean? The, the sort of nuance there between those two things. But, but I think it's a step in the right direction. And we'll see, yeah, absolutely. We'll see how well that, that holds up in the next few years. But I think you're absolutely right. Like it's increasingly difficult to function in society without not just access to the net, but good access to the yeah. net, right? Yeah. yeah. And desktop access to the, ad, the net often. Yeah. Well, that's a matter of uh, design, I think, right? One of the things I we wanted so to too, talk yeah. about, which is... Wh- it's a big opportunity. Yeah. Why should it matter? So you're, you're, mm-hmm. earlier you were saying a billion people coming online, all of them mobile first, mobile only, yeah. no experience with a desktop machine and no access to sort of fall back to one if they need to. 
There's a lot of ways you can slice those stats, right? A billion is a catchy number. You could talk about users coming online uh, who have access to a desktop computer in uh, Brazil, for example. Um, but where I'm really interested is India, Indonesia, and, and other countries that um, where there's sort of this explosion of growth around mobile devices. Because I think what we've seen is that users who have had a desktop computer or have a desktop computer or have access to one uh, have a lot less difficulty um, than users on mobile only. You've taken an interesting approach to that, right? I think there are a bunch of ways, a bunch of angles that you could approach that opportunity. And you've chosen an interesting layer of what can we do to the browsers to enable people to design experiences for this uh, demographic or this this new mm -hmm. audience. Yeah, it's a it's a super interesting set of problems. I've been working on Chrome for about three years now, and uh, it's interesting because you're sort of working in this space between a product and a platform. Um, so on one hand, you have Chrome, and we have people ask us, well, what do you what do you design anyway, right? It's just this gray box that, you know, gray box if you're on a desktop, gray line if you're on your mobile. <laughs> um, and most people don't think about it very much, which is how it should be. But there's a lot of aspects of designing for the browser, thinking about kind of the features that we provide. Uh, so think about like bookmarks, or uh, there's a new downloads feature, which we've just uh, launched. Um, thinking about how we surface errors and uh, Interstitial. So, for example, um, we know that users in emerging markets hit network error pages more often than users in other markets, much more often, in fact. Um, so how do we surface that? What, what kind of features can we provide when users hit a dead end so that it uh, kind of catches them when they fall? Um, I think there's a lot of, lot of aspects of that. Um, and then there's the other side of things, uh, which is something I work on a little bit less, uh, but something that's, if not as, but maybe more important, which is what tools and techniques are available to people in order to reach this new market. And of course, I'm starting to talk about progressive web apps. It's something that I'm incredibly excited about because they enable developers to work in this space between the native app and the web and hopefully give them access to sort of the best of both worlds. Uh, which is a really exciting moment in time to have. Yeah, I agree. And and uh, let's talk about that in a minute. But I want to go back to this idea of the uh, Chrome or the browser itself as this like empty vessel, right? Like mm -hmm. this unwritten book that uh, should yeah. have all the content poured into it. It seems to me that there's the the things that you were talking about, like error messages and uh, various functions of like downloading apps and and all of that sort of stuff, could be incredibly influential to how empowered people feel when they first get online, right? So mm -hmm. if somebody is trying to get online, trying to accomplish something, and the network goes away, and you get this error message, how much work do you have you done or the Chrome team done around making sure those messages are appropriate for the cultures in which they're perceived? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So um, one thing I did I want to say recently, but actually it must have been more than a year ago now, um, was I conducted a, worked with a, a partner on my team, Edward. Uh, we conducted a network error audit. So we looked at all of the network errors that exist for Chrome. There's sort of more than 60 that are serviced separately and, and uh, hundreds that aren't. Um, and we did work to kind of simplify the language and make the errors themselves more actionable. Um, this was partially with uh, users in emerging markets in mind, but also partially with just everyone in mind. And I think that that's kind of, uh, you know, often the case. Uh, so what we did was we removed jargon, we made things shorter, we made things clearer, um, and tried to sort of simplify the language um, to let users know if there was something they could do or not. 
um, try to help them understand the problem uh, when appropriate or when it was not so complex that uh, a user doesn't need to understand it. Um, and then we also uh, tried to add actions or make actions uh, clearer in cases where uh, they were needed. So things like, you know, only surfacing the reload action on a page where reloading it will actually change anything, right. um, which is a complex gray area. Sure. Um, and then looking for features where we could help uh, users solve the problem themselves. So uh, intending out into uh, additional information if it's helpful to help them troubleshoot, but also just surfacing the clear actions right up front. So things like um, check your connection. Uh, are you on airplane mode? These kinds, these kinds of things. What's the deal with the dinosaur icon <laughs> in Chrome? Uh, it's a good question. I think it's a, it's a d near and dear to our hearts. Um, and if anyone hasn't discovered it, you should press the space bar when you're on the net error page. Oh, okay. All right. I've, I've not done that. And Oh, oh, uh, Jeff. The dinosaur, it's all about the dino game. Oh my gosh. I, all right. I'll, I'll go check There's that out. <laughs> Worst case scenario, you have no internet connection and then you can play the dino game. This week's episode is brought to you by Pingdom. I am so glad to have Pingdom as a sponsor because I've been a user for years. Back when we were building Typekit, we made a promise to our users that the fonts we served for their website would load quickly and not delay their pages. We used Pingdom to monitor all of our services and relied on their notifications when any of our systems were slow or reporting outages. This gave us an instant heads up, allowing us to solve problems before our customers even noticed. And I'll share with you a little secret. We used Pingdom to monitor our competitors as well to see how well they were doing and how we compared. You can start monitoring your websites and servers today at pingdom.com presentable. You'll get a 14-day free trial, and when you enter offer code presentable at checkout, you'll get 20% off your first invoice. Pingdom is focused on making the web faster and more reliable for everyone who has a website. They do this by offering powerful and easy to use tools and services. For example, if you're a Pingdom user, monitoring the availability and performance of your server, database, or website, it'll be a breeze. Pingdom takes care of this by using more than 70 global test servers that emulate visits to your site, checking its availability as often as every minute. These days, websites are becoming more and more sophisticated and very often include loads of dependencies. These are things like contact forms, e-commerce checkouts, logins, search functionality, and more. So Pingdom makes it possible to monitor the availability of all of these key interactions that people will have with your site. Look, stuff breaks on the internet all the time. Every month, Pingdom detects around 13 million outages. That's more than 400,000 outages every single day. So regardless of whether you have a small website or you're managing a complete infrastructure, it's super important to monitor the availability and performance. All Pingdom needs is a URL you wish to monitor and they take care of the rest. When Pingdom detects an outage, you'll be immediately alerted so you can fix the error before the downtime affects you and your users. You don't want to be caught out when somebody wants to access your site, so you need Pingdom. Check it out today, and you'll be the first to know when your site is down. Go to pingdom.com presentable for a 14-day free trial and use the code presentable to get 20% off at checkout. Thanks to Pingdom for sponsoring Presentable and supporting Relay FM. All right, so you uh, have also done something interesting that I have been talking about at a higher level for the past few shows, which is this idea of exposing the people on a team who are developing a technology to the users of that technology, right? basic sort of user experience practice. But you did that by taking a whole group from the Chrome team to India for a couple weeks. <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, I mean, I should add the caveat. I didn't do that. Um, our, our researcher, Helen, and our sure. product manager, Tal, uh, but our team, yeah, did do this. Uh, so we brought a team of about, well, there were sort of, I think, three... 
three different trips on Chrome. I also attended one on Search. So there's sort of been a really a number of these trips happening across the different products across the company. Um, and yeah, so we definitely brought a group of people, you know, product managers, engineers, designers, and we all went and uh, participated in the user research on the ground. Uh, so we got to attend uh, in home interviews. Uh, it's really, really quite an impressive feat in order to organize one of these because you need to sort of bring, you know, 15 or so people who have no experience conducting user research um, and still be able to conduct the research while getting uh, high quality results. So I'm really in awe of our researchers who managed to sort of coordinate these types of trips uh, for Chrome um, and get get these great uh, insights coming out of them. It seems like it would be challenging on a couple of levels. One, just logistically, right? <laughs> Getting yeah, yeah, you know, that group of people um, on some kind of organized trip like that, but also in making sure that you're not influencing yeah. the results of the test, right? You don't want 15 people huddled around one poor person <laughs> with their cell phone in a market. Precisely. Yeah, so there's a lot of work that's done around that. So for example, we always break out into groups, so there wouldn't be more than uh, three of us coming to like a home visit. Uh, so that means coordinating quite a lot more interviews, but it also means that we can cover a lot more ground, which is great. One rule that I've heard, which uh, some people adhere to, uh, which I thought was quite interesting, but does dramatically increase the logistics, uh, it's about not bringing our laptops with us. Uh, because you think about it, you know, you're going to visit someone uh, and there's a smartphone is a, a new purchase for them and we bring in, you know, four uh, multi-thousand dollar laptops and we're all sitting there. It's also the sort of the physical barrier of the laptop screen, you know, typing your notes away on that. It's kind of between you and the people. So uh, I did do one trip where we only took notes on paper, uh, which means that you're, you know, getting up at 4.30 in the morning, you drive for two hours, do your first hour and a half long interview and rinse and repeat twice. Uh, you get home at after 10 o'clock and then you have to transcribe your notes. So it's a pretty intensive process, but uh, I, I think it does sort of have an impact on the way that, you know, the comfort level of our, of our participants. So what did you see while you were there? So the, the last trip to India was quite some time ago. I've been doing a lot of design work since then. Uh, but we did a sort of whirlwind tour of, let's see, Mumbai and then Calcutta and two regions sort of in those areas. We also were in Pune, which is just outside, uh, well, two hours outside, just outside for India. So we were able to see pretty wide variety of uh, users and meet with different kinds of people. We also kind of were able to drive quite a lot. Uh, we wanted to make sure that our uh, our data was well distributed. So we really put in a lot of effort to sort of drive uh, outside of the cities and, and see different users in different neighborhoods. So that was a, a good portion of the time. I didn't get a lot of uh, tourist time in, but it was a great experience. Yeah, it sounds like it. Did you have those sort of kind of, I don't know, uh, epiphanies while watching somebody trying to you know go through their lives? We had a few interesting experiences. One guy we met, we interviewed in the market, he was running a, a small business. Uh, he sold belts. Uh, he had like a stall there. And it was funny, you know, we went up and said, hey, you know, do you mind if we talk to you? And he said, sure, just a second. He like puts down his phone. And then we noticed that he's got two phones. And we said, oh, well, what's going on with that? Why do you have two phones? And he said, oh, well, you know, this obviously is my personal phone. And this one here is my work phone. He's got two phones. Um, he's uh, got sort of an internet connection that he's accessing from uh, sort of a nearby business, and he's using the internet, uh, his business phone, in order to communicate with customers using WhatsApp. Um, and what he'll do is he'll search, he'll use Google image search to search for belts and sends them to recurring, like repeat customers. And 
you know, find out what they like. And if they like something, then he offers to order it for them. So that's sort of what he's doing. He's kind of identifying, uh, you know, areas of interest and trends uh, using images and uh, WhatsApp in order to kind of build his business over time. That was kind of an interesting experience. I bet. I, I bet. And so what do you sort of pull out of all of this? Um, I know you've talked a bit about uh, the interface language, textual versus iconographic, things around uh, offline storage for web-based items and, and stuff like that. Tell me a little bit about that. I think the, the high-level one that I talk about over and over is that for users that haven't had access to a desktop computer before, um, they don't really have the same mental models that you would expect to have from a user on desktop, um, which is a little bit hard to unpack. Uh, one really good example that Bruce Lawson from Opera sent me was this video of a user from Pakistan. Um, he had a you know just a normal like Nokia phone uh, for a long time, and they handed him a smartphone and said, "Okay, just use Google to search for your favorite actress." And he, it's a video of him trying to use Google.com for like three minutes and unsuccessfully, uh, like being unsuccessful in tapping into the search bar and, and pulling up the keyboard um, because he wasn't used to that pattern. The like, there's a box, tap into the box, there will be a keyboard that appears. Um, so that was really interesting. I think it's, it's the big insight for me is just that it's hard to know what you don't know. And the best thing for us to do is start uh, testing with and observing these users so we can figure out what we're taking for granted. Um, in a lot of cases, that's basic stuff like understanding that you can tap into a text box or understanding an icon or, um, you know, really sort of things that we think of as simple but are really just something that we've learned over time. So there's probably, you can kind of break that down into the sort of onboarding of somebody yeah. uh, versus the the day-to-day -day usability and intuitiveness of the, the tools to help them solve the problems that they're getting to. And intuitive, this is something I harp on all the time because I think that we think of things as intuitive when really they're just consistent, right? In, in Chrome, we uh, do a great job and, and I think we've, we've been successful in creating a lot of UI that's very consistent. Uh, I think a lot of the info bar thing that pops up like uh, when you want to translate a page um, but for a lot of users in emerging markets, we saw that there there was sort of a people misconstrued those as having um, an ad implication or coming from the website. Um, so we need to make sure that the, the thing that we display uh, is intuitive, meaning that when you look at it, you know what it does. Yeah, and people with tremendously different backgrounds can know what it does. That's uh, that's always been a challenge. Actually, it makes me like one of the hard questions I've always come back to is: Can a designer who has lived their whole life in uh, Western society ever appropriately designed for somebody in an emerging market who has a completely different set of life experiences. Like, can you, it, it seems like the, the amount of, I don't know, translation really is overwhelming. I've never successfully uh, done that. I've always partnered with designers in those regions, you know, and then kind of worked on communicating goals and a strong API and said, you design how it should be over there. And I will try to support that over here the best that I can. But I don't know, I go back and forth. No, I, I absolutely agree with you. Actually, something I'm advocating for more, and I think that's something hopefully we'll be successful in is hiring uh, contractors on the ground to help us test and design uh, some of our products. Uh, I think Chrome is an especially tricky one because, you know, uh, Chrome as a browser is kind of this a rabbit hole of complexity in terms of what's designed. So uh, yeah, partnering up, I think is probably the best way to go. Uh, but something else I advocate for all the time is, is just conducting a lot of user testing uh, because right. I think there's sort of two parts of it, right? One is about um, sort of the 
conditions, right? What What's different on mobile from desktop? So things like typing are just harder, whether you're from an emerging market or you're from the UK and you're using a phone. Um, and then there's also cultural aspects, like do users understand this language that I'm using or do users understand uh, this iconography that I'm using? Um, that's And of course, other aspects of it, like um, sort of the way that our preconceived notions about emerging markets come through in our design. And that's something that we absolutely need to test uh, with users there in order to catch uh, or partner with someone there in order to avoid doing. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, user research and exposure to people using your products is, uh, I think, primarily a tool for building empathy. You do get some answers and some insights, but ultimately it is about uh, honing that that empathic feeling around the people that you're designing for. But at some point, I wonder, like I said before, do you do you reach that state of empathy where you're like, I honestly believe that I cannot serve these users based on my background, and I need a much more diverse team to work with to help me do that? And it sounds like you're you kind of agree with that as well, huh? Yeah, somewhere there, I think. Yeah. Uh, I think we've been lucky in that we we have a fairly diverse team, or at least uh, not just in Chrome, but across the different uh, Google products. And we come together and we talk and we look at our work and we're able to give a lot of criticism and feedback. Um, but I, I agree. I think that the only way to go is to, I mean, if, if your company can afford it, I think, uh, you know, Google's at an advantage. But if you look at a lot of startups, I think it's important to acknowledge that uh, they fall different, you know, different places on the spectrum. But I think that ultimately the way to go is just to partner with users and with designers in emerging markets and uh, uh, get their insights, especially at a high level. Sure, sure. And Google has the advantage, certainly, but also the responsibility. I mean, this, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, like Apple, controlling both the browser and the operating system, right? They, (laughs) and I would imagine the desire to have those billion new users be a billion new customers. So mm-hmm. makes a ton of sense. It sounds like you're yeah. well positioned in there to, or your team, you know, is is uh, thinking about that the right way. That's awesome. So speed, we talked about that. Incredibly, incredibly slow. Yes. Uh, all of these people that are coming online doing so at, at remarkably slow speeds. Designing around that, this is something I felt strongly about for a long time. Didn't hurt that I worked at Google, and every <laughs> conversation in every meeting I ever had was inevitably about milliseconds. But yeah, so tell me how you think about that. Uh, so I think that uh, there's there's a statistic that everyone has hopefully heard at this point. It's, it's sort of the quintessential Google statistic, but it came from a report uh, with the Aberdeen group. Um, and they say that a one-second delay in page loading leads to 11, 11% fewer page views. Yeah. Uh, which is a which is a huge percentage if you if you think of Google and the number of searches we get uh, or page navigations we get overall. Um, but I think this, the stat that I've been more interested in recently is comes from a report from DoubleClick, um, and it's it's that mobile sites uh, take 19 seconds uh, to load over 3G on average. So if you think about that, and, and and a huge percentage of users on mobile abandon sites that take longer than three seconds to load. I think it's just over 50%. So if you think about that, <laughs> all of those stats together, the, the picture that they paint, uh, and then you think about the description I've given you earlier about you know the kind of speeds that users on 2G are are getting. Um, I think it kind of gives you a pretty clear picture of, of uh, you know, what kind of experience users in emerging markets are going to be getting if they're if they're accessing the web on two G. Um, so I think that that's a that's a pretty a pretty dire picture, but something that uh, I think of as an area of responsibility for us. Um, so not only to make Chrome and make page loading faster as much as we can and to educate the developer community about what they need to do in order to make their pages load faster, uh, but also think about how we can um, improve the perceptions of speed. Um, so a lot of a lot of how fast people see 
things as uh, has to do with different factors in perception. There's a lot of sort of like interesting little tidbits around uh, speed perception, like uh, the way that we design loading bars, progress bars, has a big impact on uh, speed perception. So it can be uh, up to an 11% difference. Uh, I think the the best progress indicator is the progress indicator with a backwards animation uh, that decelerates in speed. And that, that kind of loading bar can be seen as 11% faster. I'm not sure I get that. Uh, Hang on. Back, backwards yeah. animation. What do you mean? Right. So you've got, you've got like your progress bar, yeah. right? And you've got maybe some lines, vertical lines in your progress bar. And they're moving sort of backwards towards, towards maybe the left side of the progress bar if you're, if you're a, a left to right English reader. Um, so they're, they're kind of moving backwards. And then the speed, it should be kind of decelerating. So it doesn't, uh, it starts fast and it, it slows down a little bit over time. Interesting. Do you have any idea why that is? I don't know, <laughs> but it works. It's better. Okay. Uh, yeah, it was, it was from this really great report called Faster Progress Bars, and it, it looked at sort of all these different kind of progress bars and how people perceived how fast they loaded things. All right. Well, I'll find a link to that and put it in the show notes so we can all have a look at what okay, a, a reverse slowing down progress bar looks like. <laughs> uh, that's that's exactly right, right? That these, these things, the perception of speed is so much different than the measurement of milliseconds. Mm -hmm. They're intimately intertwined, but you can do so much with maintaining somebody's expectations by carefully designing transition states between yeah, things that inevitably are going to be either slow or unknowable and how long they're going to take. Yeah, well, and the uh, the point about unknowable is, I think, really interesting, too, because you can even go back to some of these. I, I go back to my old, my industrial design education and them talking about how there were a lot of, uh, there's a lot of research done in HCI on air traffic controllers and how to make that job safer for everyone, because there's a lot of stuff in that job that's bad for human brains. Yeah. So what I'm getting at is that, uh, is that anxiety and not knowing something, unexplained and unexpected waits seem much longer to people than, you know, if they know how long something is going to take. And it's hard for people to pay attention to something um, and then like return to attention after a long period of unknown waiting. So there's a lot of really interesting numbers that come from, uh, actually it comes from the Neil, Nielsen Norman group we mentioned earlier. Um, they, they have a couple of articles on this and they talk about sort of three, th three thresholds, right? 0.1 seconds is sort of the um, amount of response time required for direct manipulation feedback, which means if you tap on a screen on a button and it responds within 0.1 seconds, you have the impression that you're, you're doing a thing on the screen, right? Like you are acting on that thing. And then there's the one second, which is navigation feedback. It's the response time that gives users the feeling that they're navigating freely around a website. So that's the time for, for loading a page, for example. Uh, and then 10 seconds for keeping focus. So that, that comes back to what I was saying earlier. Like, if you don't know how long you're going to wait, you can wait about 10 seconds, um, and then a, a user might lose attention. And that's pretty universal across uh, different countries. Right. Uh, it's a good framework, those orders of magnitude as they apply to just any interaction that somebody is having. I'll give you an interesting counterexample. Um, I was a bunch of years ago working with Ev Williams on Blogger, designing the onboarding experience of like, what is a blog? I want one. What is the name of my blog? What template do I want to use? And then you push the button and you kind of go to your dashboard. And we did a bunch of usability testing on all of that and found that at that last step where I have like entered the information, chosen how I want it to look, I'm ready to go. And I pushed the button. We would immediately bring them to their dashboard to start, you know, adding content. And people are like, whoa, 
what just happened? Did that work? <laughs> and so what we did was we put a two second delay in between those two pages with a spinner that did nothing, right? It was literally implemented in JavaScript, but just like, wait, wait, here's your blog. And, and it dramatically changed the perception like, oh, boy, they went off and they set up my blog and they like, you know, all these big computers in the cloud did all this work. They personalized it. Yeah. So I, it really taught me a lot about this, this notion of perception of speed in both directions. Sometimes things can actually happen too fast and you got to, yeah. you got to pace things out for people. But yeah, to your point, how do we help them through steps and make sure that they know that something hasn't gone wrong? Well, and I think it ties back to the idea of like, how users understand what computers are doing, you know, when they tell it to do a thing. I think that's, it's really, really interesting. Yeah. And this is why I always advocate for in-person usability testing. I, and I think remote testing is great, especially for teams that are moving really fast and just are, are new to user research. It's a lot less onerous to use something like usertesting.com or one of the other services. But in-person usability test where you are watching the person live sit in front of a screen, you see things like them leaning forward, looking at the screen, the, the little furrow in their, in their forehead. <laughs> Something is wrong here. Like their perceptions of what's happening do not match what the system is trying to tell them. And you can, you can yeah. pick up on that stuff, especially with the really well-trained uh, an experienced user experience facilitating can get at that kind of stuff without sort of polluting the environment and, and getting people to you know, feel insecure or whatever. I think it's, yeah. it's remarkable to see that in, in action and really pick up on like something is wrong right here because they're leaning forward and they're squinting a little bit. What's going on? Yeah, absolutely. So, okay, that's what can we see in Chrome that, that your team has been working on that's, I don't know, coming soon or, or has recently uh, been improved? Recent landing. Yeah, what do you, what do you I... like? Yeah, there's quite a few things that have come out recently. I'll try to I'll keep it to the the interesting things that I've that I've worked on that I can talk about. Um, so I think one of the things that I'm excited about that's uh it's been in for a little bit now. So hopefully folks have already seen it. Although I think uh, there's sort of a lot of new pieces of it coming out soon. Uh, is the page the the new tab page uh, which appears when you open Chrome for the first time, oh, yeah. um, or when you open a new tab? We've made a lot of little changes to that over time. I made some kind of visual changes that our uh, previous designer Sebastian wanted to make uh, some time ago, but uh, now we finally made. Um, but we've also done a lot of work to make that sort of more tappable. Um, so one thing is that uh, it used to be when you opened Chrome for the first time, we only showed you a little gray icon that said, this is where your things will be, uh, yep, which is yep. not a great experience <laughs> if you've never used Chrome before and you don't know what to expect. So we did a lot of, or by we, I mean the, the very smart and talented engineers did a lot of work to uh, pre-populate that page with locally relevant content. So instead of coming to an empty page, you come to a page with some stuff in it uh, that you recognize and maybe have heard of before. Uh, besides that, we've added some uh, content suggestions, which are just below the fold. So if you scroll down, you can now see kind of uh, some content that might be relevant to you. Um, and that's something we're just testing out. It's very, very new. Uh, and I think it's um, something that we're optimistic about. Mm. Um, cool. Yeah, that's one, one big piece. Uh, I think the other big piece that I'm, well, one of the many big pieces I'm excited about uh, is the, the, down, the new downloads features that we've uh, recently shipped. Uh, so those are... Uh, a lot of this is very ba baseline stuff, right? It's just the idea that it's now easier to download content in Chrome and it's easier to find it when you when you've downloaded it and get back to it. 
so we added a download button <laughs> to the uh, default media player. So when you're watching a movie now, you might be able to download it more easily. And then we've also added like a downloads home, which is just the download item in the menu. When you click on that three dot menu in the top right, yep. you can go and you see all the things you've downloaded in Chrome. Yep. Yeah, I can tell you from experience of having worked at Adobe for a while that the idea of getting software from a web server onto somebody's computer and having them successfully find it, launch it, and install that software is still a nightmare for many, many people. They just literally have no idea what just happened and where anything is. So any work that you guys do on the usability of that, I think is, is uh, well prioritized. I think the, the last piece that I should mention, which is actually the most important piece, but has very little UI to it, uh, is uh, around making things faster. So many, many smart, uh, talented people did a lot of work to uh, help pages be smaller. Uh, so if you turn on the data saver feature, which we, I think, promote in emerging markets, uh, your pages will be compressed and they will be smaller. There's sort of a number of different features that work there. And then we did design work to kind of make them all feel the same way. Uh, so hopefully users don't need to ever know what technology is is uh, working behind the scenes. All they know is this page is smaller, I've saved some data, or it's it's loaded faster. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the, the most important thing we can be doing right now. Yeah, that's fantastic. It seems like... Uh Really important work to be doing. I'm glad you guys are, are focused on that stuff. Uh, great. Rachel, where do we find more about you? You can go to rachelillan.com to find out more about me. You can also go to the Chrome blog to learn more about all the features I've talked about. Um, and you can find me on LinkedIn or Twitter. I'm Rylan, R-I-L-A-N, uh, in order to... Uh, tweet at me. Okay, perfect. We'll do that. Well, this is a fantastic conversation. Good work. I hope you get back to India soon. <laughs> <laughs> me too. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. This has been Presentable and I'm Jeff Fien. Hey, thanks so much for listening. If you have feedback or comments or questions or anything, really, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on the web at relay.fm slash presentable or on Twitter at Presentable FM. Thanks so much.